Welcome back to the program. Few events truly define the entire complexity of the American experience. Yet the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 comes close. At its core, it addressed the founding flaw in the American Republic in taking up the issue of race itself. It incorporates the moral underpinnings and power of religion, faith, and morality in the American character. And further, it shows the best in the system of self-government designed by our founders in allowing conflict and compromise and the better angels of our nature to allow action that may not be politically expedient. In a sense, our focus on this act 50 years ago is not so much nostalgia, but perhaps longing for what we were once able to do. This is the zeitgeist that Todd Purdom captures in his new book, An Idea Whose Time Has Come, Two Presidents, Two Parties, and the Battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Todd Purdom is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, a senior writer at Politico, and previously spent 25 years at the New York Times. It is my pleasure to welcome Todd Purdom to the program to talk about an idea whose time has come. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. Great to have you here. One of the things, before we get into the, the whole aspect of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, one of the things that is so remarkable, particularly this week, listening to all the, the conversation about Donald Sterling's comments in Los Angeles, is some of the things that were said on the floor of the United States Senate in the debate about the Civil Rights Bill, things that, that exist in the congressional record to this day, in some ways they're, they're really shocking when we read them in the context of today. Yes, no. I mean, there were debates on the floor uh, between, for example, Strom Thurmond of South Carolina and Russell Long of Louisiana over whether it was inhumane to use cattle prods on civil rights demonstrators on the streets of America. And Senator Thurmond allows us how that he was chased by one of those with a, during a fraternity hazing ritual. And while it tickled, it tickled quite a bit, and he had to run 100 yards ahead of it. Um, th- these are comments that even 50 years later sound shocking to imagine that they were not only said on the Senate floor, but said with impunity, and that these people will return for many years afterward to their offices by their voters in their home states. I think there was one comment, I don't remember who made it, about God having already segregated the races by putting one group on one part of the world and another group in another part of the world. Yes, indeed. I think that might also have been Senator Long. And uh, one of the civil rights advocates countered uh, to him saying, uh, you know, there has in fact been uh, quite a bit of mixing of races in the South, and most of it was not initiated by black people. Uh, I mean, that's one of the bitter uh, uh, legacies of slavery, of course. Uh, so I, I think it's, um, it is fascinating to read those comments, to, to imagine that in the broad you know, light of day, people stood up and, and said things like that. Uh, it, it does make Donald Sterling's comments and the swift reaction to them, uh, it puts them in a, in, a, in a helpful context, I think, about the progress we probably have made in the past 50 years. One of the things, in, in looking at the totality of the passage of this Civil Rights Act, the march in Washington that, that preceded it, is that, that there were three things that seemed to come together in a kind of perfect storm. There was the political, certainly, that was driving a great deal of this. There was the practical, and that even Johnson talked about wanting to calm the waters to some extent, and also the issue of principle and morality itself. And it seems that these three things came together in kind of a unique way. Yes, I think it really was a remarkable convergence. As you point out, uh, the demonstrations that had uh, grown across the South and the violent backlash from police against them in Birmingham, clearly that, that created a kind of climate of moral outrage in the country. Then the broad display, bipartisan, biracial, interfaith, uh, March on Washington, which was such a peaceful and magnificent occasion, 
I think, uh, showed large swaths of white America that this was not a marginal concern of one group only, that this was a broad national concern. And so then when President Kennedy proposed the bill at long last in June of 1963, he elevated it to a moral issue. He said, quite memorably, it's as old as the scriptures and as clear as the American Constitution. And really, the president took the lead in framing this, as the Civil Rights Coalition itself did, of course, as a simple matter of uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And ultimately, it became really hard, in fact impossible, for Congress to fight the golden rule. And the morality issue was a very critical one in the passage of this, and also from a political perspective, with respect to the role that interfaith groups and religious groups played, particularly in the Midwest, particularly in white states. Yes, that's something I hadn't really fully understood until I began my research for this book. I'm from Illinois, so I knew about the role of Senator Everett Dirksen, the Senate Minority Leader, the Republican Leader, in passing the bill. But I didn't understand this vast interfaith coalition, which really targeted its efforts with a kind of pinpoint precision on the Midwest and Great Plains states where congressmen and senators did not have large black constituencies and would have had no natural political incentive to vote for civil rights. But they had lots of Methodists and Catholics and Baptists, and they were susceptible to an appeal from their priests and rabbis and pastors on the Sunday pulpit. And uh, it had a devastatingly uh, effective uh, result in in the sense that um, these members were quite moved and quite pressured in a very brass tacks practical way uh, by these religious groups. Talk a little bit about the context of the time, that when Kennedy proposed this in 63, it was shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was, there was a very interesting sentiment in the country that really laid the predicate for Kennedy finally moving forward to propose this. Well, yes, I mean, one of the things we forget is just how cheek-by-jowl all these events were. I mean, it was months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, the president felt that the, the civil rights issue was giving the country a huge black eye in the Cold War. The Russians were exploiting the fact that we were trying to say we were promoting democracy around the world while not honoring its most fundamental principles here at home. And... Uh, so he felt, uh, you know, he was very concerned about foreign policy, as we know, and he felt a great deal of pressure to sort of address this question in geopolitical terms. He, he knew that it was hurting America's reputation abroad. To what extent was that part of the argument for Kennedy a, a way to elevate the conversation to those that, did, that weren't caught up in, in the civil rights discussion in and of itself? Well, again, I think that was all part of the strategic effort to say uh, this isn't a southern problem, it isn't a regional problem. It's an American problem, and in fact, it's a kind of a global problem. You know, in his inaugural address, uh, when he talked uh, in those terms about paying any price and bearing any burden, he had a phrase in which he said, we're we're unwilling to witness something like the slow undoing uh, of those principles uh, of human rights uh, here at home and around the world. And the phrase, here at home, was inserted at the request of his civil rights advisor, Harris Wofford, and uh, Wofford and, and his compatriots were thrilled because it wound up, however elliptical it was, it really wound up being the sole domestic issue that Kennedy mentioned in an inaugural address that was mostly given over to foreign policy. So I think it's, Kennedy had never been blind to the importance of this issue. He had just been very strategic about it because he had a broader agenda for his domestic policy, including a big tax cut that he hoped would be an economic stimulus. And to get all that passed, he needed the support of the Southern Bulls, who dominated both houses of Congress, and he knew that pushing too hard, too fast on civil rights would alienate them. So he held back. 
eventually, as you, you pointed out, this convergence of events uh, forced his hand. And when he jumped in, he jumped in with both feet. One of the things that's so interesting that I, I think we all forget, you talk about Richard Russell of Georgia, who really led the opposition to the Civil Rights Bill, that even he, in his private moments, talked about knowing that that segregation as he knew it, as the South knew it, was going to end. And and that is an interesting overlay to this debate. Yes, I think it's one of the poignant realities that the people like Senator Russell, who was, after all, very learned and erudite, uh, even if he was, he couldn't overcome the crippling legacy of racism with which he'd been raised. He knew that his world was vanishing. He knew that the world was changing. And he knew that the best he could hope for was to delay or weaken this bill. He knew that he couldn't really stop it, especially after Lyndon Johnson became president. Uh, Russell was of the firm opinion that John Kennedy might have been willing to wheel and deal a little bit more, bargain away some of the law in order to get it passed. But he felt Johnson had to hang tough and get the strongest possible law to prove his own bona fides and to build credibility for working out his own domestic agenda, which became, as we know, you know, those social programs in education and medical care and so forth that we now think of as the Great Society. So Sir Russell knew that he was fighting a losing battle. And part of the strategy, I think, was to be able to go home and say to his constituents in Georgia, you know, we lost, but we lost fair and square. And he was among the first to stand up after the passage of the bill and say, this is now the law of the land and we must obey it. Uh, and that certainly stands in stark contrast to the kind of reaction we've seen, for example, to the Affordable Care Act, in mm -hmm. which, you know, five years after its passage, uh, big segments of the Republican Party and of the country itself are, you know, vowing to try to overturn it. You talk about it growing weaker over time. One of the ironies of this whole debate is that the bill itself got stronger as it was debated and over time. It is a fascinating reality that as the debate wore on and as the filibuster dragged on and as the bill made its way through first the House and then the Senate, despite the tensions, despite the need for some compromise, it really did get stronger than the bill President Kennedy had originally proposed. And in some ways, it's a testament to, as you said in your introduction, the way the system is supposed to work, the way that our process messy and uncomfortable as it sometimes is, can produce a better result than sort of a ex-cathedral you know, declaration from, from the get-go. And, and I think uh, the civil rights advocates themselves, as the bill came toward final passage in the Senate, were pinching themselves and were surprised and, and gratified, but certainly surprised that it had wound up being as strong as it was. You mentioned Everett Dirksen before. He played a very key role, the, the minority leader, senator from Illinois, played a very key role in all of this. Well, he did. He was the most colorful single senator of his day, really. He was a flamboyant orator who was known as the Wizard of Ooze. He kept his vocal cords lubricated by gargling every day with Pond's cold cream and water, which his wife reported he swallowed. Um, but he was also a workhorse. And he supported the bill when President Kennedy proposed it, with two notable exceptions, really the heart of the bill. He was concerned about the public accommodation section, the, the section of the bill that would have desegregated uh, hotels, motels, lunch counters, and things like that, and the part that would have provided for redress uh, of employment discrimination. And he did so in part because Illinois, his home state, the land of Lincoln, already had strong anti-discrimination laws on the books. And in that classic Midwestern, small-town conservative way, he worried about what he saw as interference with the small businessman, harassment of uh, dual sets of record-keeping and that sort of thing. So the compromise he basically engineered was to let states like his that had such laws on the books get a first crack at enforcement before the Fed stepped in. And that had the effect of really 
targeting the bill explicitly to the legal segregation in the South and leaving mostly untouched the de facto segregation that in many real ways endures to this day, of course, in places like Boston and Chicago and, and New York. And so uh, the Southerners saw that for what it was, an attempt to round up support from his fellow conservatives to cut off debate in the Senate and pass the bill. But it worked. One of the really interesting things, again, some of the stuff that really runs counter to what our perceptions were is so interesting in all of this. We think of Johnson as being deeply involved once he became president and very active and in your face. In fact, one of the things you talked about is how restrained LBJ was as this worked its way through the Senate. Yes, it, it does run a little bit counter to the image of him as a wheeler and dealer. In fact, at a crucial moment when Everett Dirksen went to the White House seeking what he thought might be a grand bargain and some kind of compromise on the bill, Johnson sent him away empty-handed in less than 20 minutes. And so Johnson did work his will on some reluctant Democratic senators in particular to vote, to cut off debate, to vote for what we call cloture. Uh, but he did not get in the process of micromanaging the Senate. He knew that that would probably backfire with his former colleagues who would resent him uh, because he was no longer a senator. He was the president. He had to be careful not to come on too strong. You can see in the secret White House tape recordings that he kept how he's chafing at the strategy that Hubert Humphrey, the bill's floor manager, and Mike Mansfield, the Senate Democratic leader, had adopted of basically letting the Southerners have their say, have their day, sort of talk themselves to death, in the hope that eventually, in an almost jujitsu-like way, the dynamic would change, and it would suddenly be the Southerners on the defensive trying to justify dumbing up the works. And, and in fact, that's what happened. And uh, I think many uh, Humphrey and Mansfield aides to this day uh, feel that their strategy was the right one and was absolutely crucial in getting the bill passed, and that if President Johnson had come in there with guns blazing, uh, he might have uh, done more harm than good. At the same time, they give him credit for being what one of them called the shotgun always behind the door, ready to come, come in if needed. And I think for a person of President Johnson's you know, indomitable will and ego, it must have taken an enormous amount of self-control mm -hmm. to, to restrain himself that way. And so I certainly think uh, he deserves you know, all the credit he gets uh, in helping pass the bill, just not for some of the, the cliched and sort of stereotyped reasons that, that we ascribe to him. The other aspect is the degree to which so many individuals in both the Senate and the House really did get get caught up in the moral underpinnings of this that really did create kind of profiles and courage, people like Bill McCullough from Ohio being perhaps the penultimate example. Yes, I mean, he was a conservative Republican from western Ohio. His hometown of Piqua is now represented by Speaker John Boehner, in fact. And McCulloch was just about as conservative as Boehner in many ways. He opposed federal aid to education and gun control, skeptical of foreign aid. He never spent all his office allowance but turned part of it back in because he felt it was wasteful, didn't need to spend all that money. But he, he was descended from abolitionists who had been in Ohio before the Civil War. And as a young lawyer, fresh out of Ohio State, he'd gone to practice for a while in Jacksonville, Florida. And he'd been absolutely appalled by the injustices and indignities of Jim Crow. And he was just always a fierce supporter of civil rights, uh, helping his local NAACP chapter and so on. So first in the Ohio legislature, and then when he got to the House, uh, civil rights was one of his pet causes. And by 1963, he was the ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. And when President Kennedy proposed the bill that summer, McCulloch made a deal with the administration. He said, listen, if you promise not to water this bill down in the Senate, as had been the usual practice, and if, believe it or not, you promise to give the Republicans equal credit heading into next year's presidential election, I'll bring along my Republican caucus in the House. And that's just what happened. 
And McCulloch's uh, insistence on not weakening the bill forced first the Kennedy administration and then President Johnson to try something that had never before succeeded, which was to cut off debate in the Senate and pass a strong civil rights bill without compromise. And that, too, is just what happened, almost completely because of the single-minded insistence of this one person whose name is almost completely forgotten today. We've talked a lot about the political and the principled and all of this. What role did the personal play, the relationships that these people had with each other, even across the aisle? To what extent was that a key element in this story? Well, I think it was a key element in preserving civility and preserving a climate in which each side could have its say. People could disagree without being disagreeable. There are numerous examples of senators fighting each other hammer and tong over the substance of the bill and then repairing to one of the other's offices to share a drink at the end of the day. Uh, there's a notable occasion when Hubert Humphrey is debating Willis Robertson, senator from Virginia and the father of the televangelist Pat Robertson. And at the end of their exchange, Robertson walks over and takes a small Confederate flag pin and puts it in Humphrey's lapel. And Humphrey accepts it, and Robertson says that only because of the brave Union soldiers from Wisconsin and Minnesota who came down south did the Union triumph in the Civil War. And uh, Humphrey repays some equally flowery compliments back to Robertson. And I know we have to be careful about not over-romanticizing those days, and there were certainly plenty of things wrong with the Washington of 1963 and 64. But I do think the threshold level of civility that prevailed was important in keeping the debate on an even keel and sort of a high plane. And it was important in the end of the day uh, in showing mutual respect for the other side. And uh, one of my favorite examples is on the day that the bill, uh, the, the day that the cloture vote happened in the Senate, the debate was cut off and it was clear that, that the bill was going to win. Uh, the chief lobbyist for the NAACP and also sort of forgotten man named Clarence Mitchell walked Senator Richard Russell back to his office, the defeated leader of the Southern forces, just as a gesture of respect. And Senator Russell told him that precisely because the debate had been so civilized and so protracted, the law would be accepted. And in large measure, it was. Given how divisive this issue was, given the, the sense of, of hostility in certain parts of the country, certainly in parts of the South, talk a little bit about how that squares with the civility that we saw in this debate, because when we put it up against, and you used the reference before, when we put it up against even the debate about the, the Affordable Care Act, it is so remarkably different. Well, yes, Jeff, the paradox is that in 1963, the country was brutally divided. I mean, really, we seemed almost on the verge of a second civil war. There was a great deal of you know disorder in the streets. There was bitter opposition. People were dying, literally, in the cause of civil rights. And yet, Washington was still a place that functioned. It was still not so polarized, and it was a place where people came to get work done, not to stop things from happening. Now the country's divided. It's a kind of 51-49 country, as we've seen in the last several presidential elections. But Washington and our representatives in Congress are polarized out of all proportion to the way the public is actually divided. And that's partly because we have these districts that are redder and redder and bluer and bluer, in which the risk for any member of Congress is a primary challenge from the left or the right, not uh, being defeated in November. And so I think that's something that structurally has profoundly changed in the country over the past 50 years, and something that has, has left us in much worse shape than we were 50 years ago in terms of the functionality of our politics. And that division that existed in the streets and the concern back in, in 1963 was really what led a, a great deal of fear, for, particularly from the Kennedy administration, about the march on Washington and fear that it would turn into something very different than what it did. 
Yes, there was almost terror in the halls of the White House and Congress about what that march might turn into. Remember, in the beginning, it was supposed to be a march on the Capitol itself, a kind of occupation of the Capitol, and uh, that was quickly scotched. And when the Kennedy administration couldn't block it, uh, it determined to help organize it in logistical sense. And so partly because of the support of the Justice Department and the armed forces and the local D.C. police and so forth, it became a smashing organizational success as well as a moral success. And um, the, the truth is, uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, who was the Deputy Attorney General, told me that he would like to think all members of Congress who supported this bill did so out of a high sense of moral purpose or justice. But he acknowledged that a lot of support for the bill came because members were persuaded that a new law was the only way to stop the demonstrations. And only by removing the legal discrimination could you lance the boil and, uh, and stop the demonstration. And of course, we know... In hindsight, that turned out not to be the case. The demonstrations continued, and as the 60s wore on, this issue became much more divisive, and uh, the coalition that had passed this bill effectively splintered over things like busing and affirmative action and the Vietnam War. And uh, so the poignant part about this story is that while it, it is an example of the country and the system working, it's also one of the last grand times when it did. And it's interesting to see as a sub-story of this the way J. Edgar Hoover was trying to stir up the waters in his own way by, by the information and misinformation that he passed on. Yes, he was selectively providing information to the Kennedy White House about Dr. King and particularly about the former communist affiliations of one of Dr. King's principal advisor, a person named Stan Levison. What Hoover never told the White House was that by the time he was circulating this information, Levison had long since ceased his support for the Communist Party and had transferred his allegiance instead to Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in terms of raising money and, and so forth. And of course, um, Martin Luther King never knew what J. Edgar Hoover knew about John F. Kennedy's own sexual peccadilloes and, and his uh, indiscretions over the years, where, while Kennedy did know about the, the, the material uh, Hoover was gathering on King. So both Kennedy and King, in a strange way, were flying a bit blind in their dealings with each other, and Hoover was a sort of a master manipulator, uh, keeping them at uh, cross-purposes in, in, in a way, um, and, uh, and making the relationship more complicated than it would have had to be. What role, if any, did the press play in all of this, and the way this story was reported as it played out? Well, the press covered it in a very diligent way. Uh, there was a, a cadre of people who called themselves the, the Culture Caucus uh, because they were watching the Senate debate in particular. Roger Mudd of CBS News became one of the great early running stories in live television, and he was on the air multiple times a day with reports from the Capitol steps because, of course, there was no C-SPAN in those days, no cameras allowed in the Senate itself. Um, so the, the press covered it very aggressively, but I think what's also a part of the success of the bill is that... Um, Members were not posturing for the cameras. They were not um, holding you know, nightly briefings. They were not trying to get their talking points for C-SPAN down. Uh, they were working fundamentally in private behind closed doors. Much of the crucial action took place in Senator Dirksen's office in a series of private conferences uh, out of the public view. And I think the ability, it sounds strange as a journalist to argue this, but I think the ability of those legislators to work in private was absolutely crucial to their success um, because they did not have to justify their positions to their own constituents at every turn. They did not have to um, have polished, uh, you know, sound bites. They could have a little give and take and, and, and frankly risk compromises that might have been shot down if they'd had to be negotiated in public. Of course, with the help in, in Dirksen's office of a lot of distilled spirits, as you say. <laughs> 
he had Dirksen had a back room which he called the Twilight Lodge, and it was stocked with a full bar. And there was a clock on the wall, and every numeral on the clock was five. So it was always perfectly appropriate time for a drink, whatever time of day it actually was. And uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, again, told me that one of the challenges in negotiating with Senator Dirksen as the evening wore on was to get a firm agreement before so much bourbon had been consumed that the senator wouldn't remember the next morning what he'd agreed to the night before, because while they could change the language of the bill once without changing its meaning, changing it twice almost invariably, you know, risk changing the legal the legal meaning of the bill, and that was more dangerous. Todd Purdom, the book is an idea whose time has come. Two presidents, two parties, and the battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's just out from Henry Holt. Todd, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's totally my pleasure. All best. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.